as a guilt offering, but do not count the initial period of consecration because it became defiled. This is the law of the Nazarite. On the day his time of consecration is completed, he is to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to present an offering to the Lord of one unblemished year-old male lamb, one unblemished year-old female lamb as a sin offering, one unblemished ram as a fellowship offering, along with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of unleavened cakes made from fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers coated with oil. The priest is to present these before the Lord and to sacrifice the Nazarite sin offering and burnt offering. He will offer, offer the ram as a sacrifice to the Lord, together with a basket of unleavened bread. Then the priest will offer the accompanying grain offering and sin. The Nazarite is to shave his consecrated head at the entrance to the tent of meeting, take the hair from his head, and put it on the fire under the fellowship sacrifice. The priest is to take the boiled shoulder from the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them into the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated head. The priest is to present them as a presentation offering before the Lord in a, for the priest, in addition to the presentation offering and the thigh of the contribution. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. These are the instructions about the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord for his consecration, in addition to whatever else he can afford. He must keep whatever vow he makes in keeping with the instructions for his consecration. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good job, everybody. Good job with all that reading. Yes, the book of Numbers said nobody, right? Said nobody. Um, I joked last week, starting this sermon series, that part of my plan for making our church into a mega church this year was preaching the book of Numbers. You all laughed, just like you did now, because you know. You know this is a tough book. Uh, it's filled with a lot of really difficult passages, and this is one that kills people's Bible reading plans and desires to go all the way through the Bible in a year. It's, it's a lot of hard stuff, and a lot of times people read things, and they're like, I don't know what to do with what I just read. It feels very foreign to us. And yet, as I said last week, this book it could not be more relevant to us. Looking again at the title, the title of this book in Hebrew is actually comes from the first three words in Hebrew, which are in the wilderness. And this is a book about people living, trying to trust God as we live between promise, the promises God has made to us, and the fulfillment of those promises. And that's very relevant to us. So today's passage is yet one of those other ones that may feel foreign and irrelevant. These rules designating a special type of devotion among the ancient Israelites called the Nazarite, the Nazarite. Um, but I want to help you enter into this today. And the whole idea of this Nazarite vow, this person who makes this vow of dedication, is really very similar to our modern idea of a cleanse. Now, cleanses are all the rage right now. Uh, maybe after Christmas, you're putting up all your stuff and you realize how cluttered and full your house is of junk. 
And so a lot of people do, you know, a house cleanse. So they'll uh, follow the guidelines to make sure they have clean surfaces. They want clean lines. They want everything to look neat again, right? Uh, maybe you're thinking about your health and you want to do a food cleanse. So there's uh, things like uh, Whole360, three, is that what? Uh, Whole30, Whole30 is right, where you, um, for 30 days, you eat only whole non-processed foods. You're trying to get toxins out of your system. Or you do a, a juice cleanse, which is to cleanse your body of all the, the stuff that you have that you've put in, and you're like, I need to kind of start over. Or maybe you think about this with a um, Netflix cleanse. You know, you've, you realize you come home every night and you do the same thing with the Netflix, and you need to take a break. You need to start over. So you unplug for a time and figure out something to do with your boredom in the evening. Or maybe, maybe it's a relationship cleanse. People are advocating to get rid of draining or toxic or, um, or people who are negative in your life. You know, cut off those relationships. Or, or even we're doing this culturally, right? We're doing this where we're a cancel culture. We cut off people who are toxic and draining and bad, right? We, we cut them off. So cleansing is all the rage, and I want you to think about this. What is the heart of a cleanse? At the heart of the cleanse is a desire to remove things that are toxic and destructive and to be pure, to be clean, really to be whole, to be whole. Um, and there's a sense in which, at looking at this passage this morning, we're looking at the Nazarite vow as nothing more than we could call it the Nazarite cleanse. Now, what's funny about this is we live in a time period which everybody seems to be allergic to this one Bible word, holy. At case in point, how many of you made a vow this year in terms of you're like, you know, starting the year, gonna, my resolution is to be more holy in 2023? Same as the first service, right? Nobody wants, nobody really wants to be holy. I mean, we think of holy as holier than thou, Somebody who thinks they're better than you, somebody who looks down on you, somebody who makes you feel bad about yourself. Um, we live in a egalitarian culture where we don't like the idea of somebody being more holy than us. And so that's what creates some cultural distance reading this book, isn't it? When we read in the book of Numbers that describes people who are set apart by God and therefore have to be purified for that. So, for example, the priests. The priest's job was to represent the people before God when going into the temple and making sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the priest had to be purified for that act. We'll read in the book of Numbers about these Levites. And they were charged with carrying, transporting all the aspects, all the parts of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, all the pieces, and they had to be purified for that act. The same thing if we think about the... Um, the prophets later on in the Bible, these are people, not like the priests who represent the people before God. These represent God. I'm sorry. These represent the people before God. The, other, the priests represent God before the people. And so like the, the prophets too, they have to be purified. Uh, this idea of purification, holiness, we just, we're like, no, not really interested in this. Um, and yet I know, I know y'all are smart people. I know we can get this. We can get this. Because the idea in the Bible of holiness with an H, is very closely connected to the idea of wholeness with a W. And it's not just because they sound the same. It's because they have similar, actually 
tones of the same meaning. The Nazarite vow, this Nazarite cleanse, is an ancient version of, this cleanse, of a cleanse. It's about setting yourself apart for special devotion to the Lord. Now, the word Nazarite, again, a little Hebrew for you this morning, um, is based on the Hebrew word Nazir, N-Z-R, if you're taking notes, Nazir. And it means a person who's set apart. And this is literally how verse 1 of this passage goes. It reads something like this. <clears throat> Let's just say there's a man or a woman who makes a special vow of dedication, who wants to take the vow of the Nazir, who wants to his ear himself or herself to the Lord. So Nazir is the noun form. His ear, H-Z-R, is the verb form. That means to dedicate yourself, to set yourself apart for a season unto another. So a Nazir would his ear himself or herself to the Lord for some period of time. Isn't that the same thing as holy? No, it's not. The word in Hebrew for holy is kadosh, Q-D-S-H. Okay, so kadosh is something only God does. God is the one who makes holy, but a person can be a Nazir who his ears himself or herself, sets themselves apart in an act of devotion, in a relationship of devotion to God. These are how these work together. In fact, that word, Nazir, appears one other place in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. It appears actually describing the clothing of the high priests. So the high priest has a crown or a turban on his head that says N-Z-R. And it's not Nazir, it's Nezer. And it means, I belong to Yahweh. And it was a symbol, like, man, this person is set apart, is dedicated to Yahweh. And Nazir is someone who sets them part, themselves apart to this special cleanse for God. In other words, a Nazir is someone who's actually taking on the lifestyle of the high priest of Israel. They have to cleanse themselves to be, be like the high priest in their diet, in their actions. High priest had to always be ready. It was always on call, like a, like a physician on duty. Had to always be ready to go into the holy of holy place. And so this is what any man or any woman in Israel is invited to do. You can take on the same Nazir and Hazir yourself to the Lord. So what's in this cleanse? There are six parts, really briefly, to this cleanse. So let's look at these, um, these rules. Lifestyle rule number one, no strong drink, no beer, no wine, but way beyond that, no raisins, right? No vinegar. You, you read this part, right? You can't even have stuffed grape leaves at Nehemiah, right? Nothing related to the fruit of the vine can go in your body. Rule number two, no hair cutting, right? No hair cutting. Let the locks grow long. Now, obviously, there's some irony to who's preaching this sermon this morning. One of the common, most common questions I get in this church, uh, the answer is twice a week. <laughs> How often do you shave your head? No, no joke. This is what people ask me. How often do you shave your head twice a week? Okay. So, no, I could never, I could not be a Nazir. Lots of my sons who are very adept at growing long hair, they could be Nazirs. Okay, uh, rule, lifestyle rule number three. Don't go near, don't touch a dead body. Now, when you're under the Nazarite vow, think about what this means. You can't bury your parents. You have a child that dies. You cannot bury your child. 
This is a, I am having nothing to do with death. Other people could in Israel. That's not like sinful. But there's something about touching a dead body that makes you unclean. Now, unclean and sinful are not the same thing. Sinful is, is something that requires the forgiveness of sins. Unclean just means you're contaminated. So you have to purify yourself before you go into worship because God is pure. So the, again, this is just like the high priest. The high priest could not be around death. I mean, think about this. What is one of God's greatest enemies? We're told three of them in the Bible. Sin, Satan, and death. Can't be around death. Uh, lifestyle rule number four, if this law is violated anyway, you have to start over. Shave off your head, shave off all the hair of your head, no matter how long it's grown. Seven days, offer some sacrifices, and then you start over. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament commentary on this passage that describes a woman much later, her name was Queen Helena, who dedicated herself as a Nazir for seven years. She gets to six years in and 51 weeks, and someone who's close to her in her court dies, and she's contaminated. She has to shave her head and start all the way over another seven years. Just begin again as a Nazir. Lifestyle rule number five, when you're done, offer a sacrifice in the tabernacle. Now, I want you to think about that. Isn't that weird? You've done all this stuff. You've gone without. You've done all these acts. And at the very end of this, you still got to offer a sacrifice for that? Hold on to that. We'll come back to that. And finally, lifestyle rule number six, this is totally voluntary and it's totally temporary. You, a Nazir who wishes to hazir herself or himself to the Lord chooses if they do this, when they do this, and how long they do this. None of this is required. And the Bible has some pretty famous Nazarites. So uh, here's a list. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, long hair, long beard, crazy diet. You know, it's funny. We think of all the people in the Bible, all the men in the Bible have beards. But there's something about John the Baptist where, like, looking at him, you're like, that guy's weird. They knew that. He was a Nazarite. Um, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, is set apart from birth by his mother as a Nazarite. Uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, we read this in the book of Acts, makes a vow to the Lord, a Nazarite vow to the Lord. In, Acts, in, in fact, he goes back to Jerusalem and shaves his head, and that's where he's arrested before he's brought to trial in Rome. That's where they catch him. Uh, and then, of course, the most famous one is Samson. And Samson is both the worst of the judges in the book of Judges and probably the worst Nazarite there ever was. That's why it's such a big deal with the hair. You know, Samson's story is all about the long hair and the strength attached to the long hair. But what does he do? He drinks, drinks alcohol regularly. He touches dead bodies, right? He, touches, he gets honey from the carcass of a lion. This is all about him being a terrible Nazarite. So I know the question that's circling and forming in the room, who cares? <laughs> like, why do we need to know this? And, and it's, it's actually, um, I want to help us because I know that it's hard when we read passages like this, the distance with us, with the Israelites, is pretty far. Uh, these people, I want you to think about this, they had no TV, they had no books, they had no laptops to open up in the evening. Uh, they had no theater. So God comes to them in the, in the law and gives his law to them. 
This is in Exodus and Leviticus. And he comes and pronounces his law to them and tells them, the law is the contents that tells them, this is what God's like. This is what God, his character is. This is how he is toward you. This is how God wants you to be toward him. But he, in giving them the laws, this is like AM talk radio, right? It's a lot of explanation. And so God, knowing that we are also visual people, doesn't just give them AM talk radio. He gives them TV. And actually, that's what a lot of Leviticus and Numbers is. This is why we feel this weird distance from this. But actually, I want you to understand, God is accommodating them. He's giving them these visual, it's like performance art for them to see not only what he says of who he is, but in a demonstrable way, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. This is what it's like to be my people. This is what I require of you. And God's showing them this. Last week, we saw this in the, in the tabernacle. And I just want you to think just really briefly about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the big tent of God, and it's not outside the camp. It's in the middle of the camp. Last thing you saw before you went into the, to the tent for, for the evening, first thing you saw when you came out in the morning, bigger than everything else, smoke coming up from it. And everything about the tabernacle told a story. It was like TV. Again, a visual of who God is. So think about this. It's got a holy place, and then it's got a holy of holy place. Tells you about God. It's got this candelabra lampstand. Again, God is light. Tells them the story. There's this giant basin called the sea, S-E-A, right? It's that kind of sea. And it's filled with water, cleansing. You know, there's this table that's got 12 loaves of bread. And the Israelites are like, how many tribes are there of us again? Yeah, oh, 12, right? Like they are in the holy place, in the holy of holies, ever before the presence of God. There's a, the Ark of the Covenant, which has got a, got a, a seat on it that's like a throne. See, God is our king. Like All these preached. All these were TV. They'd look at this and go like, oh yeah, visually, now I remember what God's told me this way, orally. You know, he's told me this, now I see it. See, TV, not radio, performative art celebration. So what's on TV in number six? What's on the Nazarite channel? What, what, what is God dramatizing or demonstrating for them, and it's this. He is showing them what every Israelite could be and can be. He's giving them this vision of what it means to be a new Adam and a new Eve. Now, I want you to think about this. Last week, I said we looked at the design of the camp. And the camp had the, the, the tabernacle, the tent of God, the tent of meeting in the middle, and around that were the priests and Levites, and around that were all the 12 tribes. And we said, God needs to be in the center. This is what God is about. God needs to be in the center. And what is he doing in this desert? What's he doing in the wilderness? He's recreating Eden 2.0. That's what he's about. He's going to walk with them. He's going to be with his people. So what does that mean by extension for every Israelite man and woman? You get the opportunity. You get the chance to be Adam 2.0, to be Eve 2.0. So let's go back through the, the rules, because these are not just weird rules. They all tell us about Adam 2.0 and Eve 2.0. Listen to this. Lifestyle rule number one, no, no strong drink. God isn't anti-alcohol, of course. He changes, Jesus changes water into wine, his first miracle. The, the Passover we'll look at in a couple of weeks. They had four cups of wine that were part of the Passover celebration. God isn't 
anti-alcohol, that's not the point. The point, remember, Adam 2.0, Eve 2.0. What did Adam and Eve eat that they weren't supposed to eat? The fruit of the vine. And, you know, Noah was supposed to be Adam 2.0. Comes off the ark. What's the first thing he does? He gets drunk on the fruit of the vine. See, God is saying, no, this is what a Nazarite can be. This is what you all have the opportunity, the invitation to be, 2.0. Lifestyle rule number two, no shaving or haircutting. What did Adam and Eve look like? I don't know, but I know it's this, ah, natural, (laughs) right? Like no bobs, no clean shaves. In fact, in the Bible, over and over again, hair, long hair, is a symbol of blessing, your hair is your glory and your crown. Again, the irony this morning, right? So, um, shaving of hair was associated with shame. Uh, it's common to shave the heads of your enemies as an act of shaming them. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 10. Hair was glory, shaved head was shame. So, what do I hope? Just, this is just for, for funsies. What do I hope to look like in the new heavens, new earth? ZZ Top, baby. ZZ Top, right there, okay? Uh, Some of you all get that later. Adam and Eve 2.0, lots of hair. Lifestyle rule number three, don't go near, don't touch a dead body. Now, this one's easy. You get this, right? Sin came into the world and death through sin, right? Death was never the part of God's plan. Never supposed to be like this. And so not touching a dead body, this makes so much sense for the new Adam, the new Eve, right? That has nothing to do with the purposes of God in this world. Um, So what is all this on the Nazarite channel for? The Nazarite was intended to be a living picture, a living demonstration of what God invites all the Israelites to be. Every man, woman, and child. Remember, God says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is the only one who can make one kadosh, holy, But his people can respond to this uh, and hazir ourselves to him to become nazirs before the Lord. That's what's on TV in Israel. Now, I want you to think about how this kind of thing would affect a community. Again, remember John the Baptist. Everybody's like, we know what he is. That's weird. And it tells us, it preaches something to us. I don't know if you've ever seen a nun. I've seen a nun several times in my life. And it's always like kind of startling. It's like, oh, well, okay. Yeah, I, I know what she is. I know what she's all about, right? She's taken voluntary vows to dedicate herself to the Lord. And I think that this is what a Nazir would be within Israel. People would bump into this person and be like, oh, I know what he's about. I know what she's about. I know what that is. And remember, I belong to Yahweh. And so it, it always, I think, I think this, would, this is how this would have worked. I think it would raise the question within Israelites, just normal people, well, just how dedicated should I be to the Lord? How much should I be devoted to the Lord? Here's what they learned watching the Nazarite channel. Devotion to Jesus, devotion to God doesn't save doesn't say. Do you notice what was needed? I made note of this earlier. Do you notice what was needed after the fulfillment of the Nazarite vow? A sacrifice. 
Now, if I were an astronaut, I'd be like, man, I just finished all this stuff. And now I've got to go find an animal without, a couple of animals without defect. I've got to make all these vows. I mean, obviously, the making of a vow to the Lord doesn't change anybody. Samson, for example, right? He makes this Nazarite vow. He's a terrible Nazarite. But let's say you, even, you just crushed it as a Nazarite. Let's say you were summa cum laude Nazarite. Like you were the bestest Nazarite there just ever was, even at the end of that. Even, it still needed a sacrifice at the end. This act of devotion you've done for the Lord, it still needs cleansing. I mean, this is fascinating. The cleanse needs a cleanse. I mean, isn't that weird? No, that's biblical. That's biblical. Let me be really clear. A Nazarite didn't make you saved. It, it, it highlights for us even that our best works need the atoning blood of Jesus. In the Levitical laws, and we've read this in the passage, people were supposed to bring an animal that wasn't sick or maimed. They were supposed to bring one without defect to the Lord. We read, male lamb without defect, female lamb without defect, ram without defect, right? None of these animal sacrifices, of this is what we read in the New Testament, none of them made anybody holy, but they were meant to be a picture. You brought your best, the one without defect to the Lord. And they offering these up to the Lord was meant to preach to the people, we need not an animal without defect, we need a human without defect as a sacrifice for our sin. We need a person without defect. You know, Jesus is the only one without defect. His prayer life didn't need atonement. The way he handled the Bible didn't need atonement. His relationships with the opposite sex didn't need atonement. The only way that a person can stand before a holy God is if, a sinful person, is if that there is a substitute. There is atonement made. There is a one without defect who stands in our place. You know, if God makes a substitute for sinners, and if you're in Christ, the lamb without defect, Jesus himself, is the one who stands in your place at the cross, who sacrificed for sin in order that all of his goodness, all of his um, sinless handling of the law and the relationship with, un- with the opposite sex and everything good he's done is credited to you. And God looks at you as if you are kadosh in Christ You are without defect because of Jesus. And all of your sin, all of your wrongdoing is put upon Jesus. And that is what killed the Son of God. Our sin for Him. He died in our place. The fact is that even if a Nazarite vow needed a sacrifice to finalize it, says that my best offerings in this life, they don't earn me any credit with God. It means when I do my devotions and I read my Bible, and let's say, you know, I'm like reading my Bible, and I'm really into it that morning. Even on the days I'm really into it, that needs the blood of Jesus. When I'm praying, and on those off times when I'm actually really, really praying, and my heart is really open before the Lord, and I'm really pouring myself out, that kind of prayer even needs the blood of Jesus. We come together and we worship, and it's one of those Sundays when y'all are singing it from like right here, not just right here, right here. And I can hear it. It's like, we're, we really mean it. That worship needs the blood of Jesus. When I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm not even thinking about what y'all think of me, I'm just thinking about Jesus. That preaching needs the blood of Jesus. Everything we do 
needs the blood of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I really want you to understand this. God doesn't want you. He doesn't need you to do anything to be a Christian. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself holy. Kadosh. Nothing. You know, there's even your best works are filthy rags to him. Even your holiest actions are enough. And that is good news, but that is really hard news in the Bible Belt. You know, I'm very convinced that it is more our goodness that keeps people out of the kingdom of God than it is badness. What I mean by that is people who think, I, I got it. And that's my testimony of coming to faith in high school. I thought my goodness counted, and it didn't. And what you need, what I need, what every person needs is the blood of Jesus. And it's there in abundance for sinners. It's there in abundance for people who know they need it. But for people who think, I got this, I've done a lot, that's the last thing that you want. Do you know that you need it? Do you know you need it? Devotion doesn't save us. It doesn't credit us. But point two, it's fitting. It's so appropriate. And I mean by that, it's appropriate for who God is. It's so appropriate that we would worship Him and honor Him and that we would say, everything is for you. You know, if you spend every moment of every day of your life honoring Him, that would be entirely fitting. Your design, part of the blueprints of a human soul, is that we are made to worship. We are made to worship the living God. Every cell in your being is made for that. And that would be entirely fitting if you said, that's what I spent my whole life doing. And you know what? At the end of it, there wouldn't be a round of applause. It would be like, that's actually right. That's actually very appropriate. It's appropriate to who God is, appropriate to who we are. You know, in Nazarite language, God is the one who makes us kadosh. But it's so appropriate for people to hazir ourselves to him, to dedicate, say, here I am, all of me, to you. So I want to put it this way. The vow of the Nazarite this, this whole Nazir, Hizir thing, this is for us. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to be, it's a picture of what every New Testament disciple can be and is invited to become. We're invited into this. Am I suggesting we all need to give up, you know, alcohol and haircuts and uh, totally, abstain, you know, like beware funerals? No, I, this is the, the invitation of this passage. The real root of this is an invitation to health, to wholeness, to maturity. This is what every New Testament Christian is invited to be, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1, to the Lord. Nazareth is a picture of someone who's kingdom-minded, who's like, Jesus is worth it. Everything about him. And you love his word, and you love the poor, and you're, you're given to uh, treasuring God and his people who loves God above everyone else and everything else. This is an invitation for us. This is what held out for us. Um, this is, like we said in Lifestyle Rule number 6, this is entirely voluntary. You know, it's expression of love. In other words, for us, as God's people, we said last week that we live in the New Testament era where the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly. And we're in Eden 3.0. The church is God's little Eden in a dark world where he has given of his spirit to inhabit his people in this place. And so the invitation for us is to become Adam 
3.0 and Eve 3.0. To offer ourselves voluntarily dedicated to the Lord. Not because you have to. Not because it checks off any boxes with the Lord or with anybody else. Because you get to. Because you're invited to. This kind of devotion earns you nothing. It's just a, I love you, Jesus. You are worth it. You're worth every bit of it. And again, this is what health, health looks like. This is what wholeness looks like. This is an invitation for us to maturity, to become mature as Christians, to move beyond like God's useful to me to God is beautiful to me. And he's worth every bit of it. Finally, special devotion. This devotion isn't for you. Notice the last weird clause in this whole Nazarite cleanse. And it's this. When you get to the end and you've done everything else as part of this and it's time to be done with your vow, you shave off and you have to burn your man bun. You got to burn your ponytail or the braid or whatever you got. You can't keep it. And that, my friends, is genius. Because if you're like me, you'd want to hold on to that. Right? You'd want to hold on. You might keep it in a box under your bed and pull it out and, you know, set it on the table and get out the Instagram with the Cephia filter and a cup of coffee and take a picture. That's me right there, y'all. I did that. It's awesome. Right? Isn't this what we do? We want to capture pictures of ourselves doing great things. We want other people to see. We want other people to see and give us credit. And God says, no, when it comes to the very end, take the, 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 the bun and put it on the fire with the sacrifice. You don't get to keep any of it. So you're not holding on to your devotion. You're just saying, this is all for God anyway. Let it go. There's a pastor up in the Philadelphia suburbs, and I was actually ordained in his church a couple of years after he passed away. And he used to push these really hard gospel questions with people. And one of my favorite ones he would ask is this. His name is Jack Miller. He'd say, what have you started doing or stopped doing just because you love Jesus? What have you started doing or stopped doing just because you love Jesus? You didn't tell anybody about it. You're not looking for applause. You're not looking for it to be posted on social media. You're not looking for other people to see. You're not looking for credit. It's just an act of devotion to him. It's just, this is for you because you're worth it. Jesus, you're worth everything. So, by way of conclusion, one last hair story. Um, in the Gospels, we read of another story uh, about hair. And it's a story where in Luke 7... Jesus has been invited over to, the din to dinner at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And we find out through the text that Jesus is not treated very well when he's welcomed to this house. He's not given any way of washing his hands for purification. And he's just invited to come and recline at the table. This is what they did, lay on cushions or a couch at a table. And so as the dinner progresses, these houses are open air. And a woman comes in off the street and she's a woman of questionable uh, reputation. She's a notorious sinner in the community. And she comes in and she leans down at Jesus' feet, which are sticking out away from the table, and she begins to weep. And she washes his feet with her tears. She dries them, she undoes her hair, and dries them with her hair. She pulls out this very expensive, costly bottle of perfume, and she just pours it out 
the whole thing. And you can imagine what a scene this created. Like, nobody's able to keep going. Smell, you smell somebody spill a bottle of perfume, it takes over. The sound of someone crying like this. And so dinner kind of stops, and there's a conversation around this. And everybody thinks this is highly, highly inappropriate, except for two people. The woman and Jesus. Because she's like, this is entirely fitting for who my Savior is. He's like, this is entirely fitting for who I am. You know, everything about her says, I belong to Jesus. It's entirely fitting for who she is as a sinner. Do you you hear the invitation of the Nazarite and the invitation of this woman is to love Jesus with costly devotion, with public devotion, with voluntary devotion. It's entirely fitting who you are, and it's entirely fitting who he is. Costly, voluntary, joyful devotion to Jesus. Two applications, and I'm done. If hearing this this morning, you find that your heart is cold, and you find little devotion to give to him, or little desire to pray or to praise, little motivation to love him this way, would you bring that to the Lord this morning? You know, that's a sign. If you find your heart is cold, you should take that really seriously. That's a sign of spiritual sickness. There's something wrong with you. You know, when you get sick, you take it seriously. You go to the pharmacy. You go to the doctor. You treat it like it's really important. And spiritually, if you find your heart is cold this morning, it's a spiritual sickness. There's something off. You know, when love is cold, when your heart is hard, when you can't adore him, I'm not saying, you know, your entire life should be like the Cameron crazies for Jesus, right? It's not supposed to be pep rally adoration all the time. But I'm just talking about a heart that's warm to him, that loves him, that values him. And if there's something dimmed or grown cold in you, I want to encourage you to bring that to the Lord. And ask the Spirit to change you. Ask the Spirit to work in you. He longs to do that. I mean, it's the Spirit's job to throw glory onto Jesus. And don't you think He wants to do that in your life? Second application, one of the greatest inventions of all time, I think, soft-serve ice cream. So, you know, before there was soft-serve ice cream, it was just hard ice cream. So you, you pull it out of the freezer, and you know what that... That container's like, it's hard as a rock. That's why the people who work at ice cream places have like these giant forearms from scooping, right, all the time. And one of the great inventions was they invented the soft serve ice cream machine. Nobody's got a scoop like that, right? It's awesome. How do they do it? But you know there's a life hack that I'm going to offer you right now. There's another way to get soft serve ice cream. You pull it out of the freezer and stick it on the counter, right? That's for free this morning, (laughs) for free. But what are you doing when you do that? You're taking the ice cream out of its normal cold environment and you're putting it in a different environment, one that's warmer. And over time, what happens is that change of environment begins to impact that ice cream. It begins to bring a softening and a warming to it. And suddenly, easy to scoop, right? I want to encourage you this this morning. This is why Christians... um, callous and cold and unloving is because we're out of the right atmosphere. And I want to encourage you in this new year to put yourself 
in a position among other Christians who are going to encourage you, who are likewise going to fan the flames of your heart in adoration and love for Jesus, to put yourself around other people in the right atmosphere of other people who are going to likewise encourage a warm heart in you. The Lord loves to work through his people. Hear the invitation to take a step this year in devotion to the Lord. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, return us to our first love, where we pray that you would renew in us a desire and a longing for more of Jesus, a deep adoration and devotion for Jesus, a heart that doesn't just like Jesus or like the things about Jesus or songs about Jesus or even a church that's about Jesus, but loves Jesus. Restore in us our joy. Restore, renew our cold hearts. Blow, Holy Spirit, we pray. Blow on the sparks that are in danger of going out. Lord, renew in us. Make the coals white hot in our praising and our prizing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word and song together.